Well, good morning and happy Super Bowl weekend. You know, uh, kind of a, a funny thing how I even came to be here this morning because originally Larry had a, a wedding last night and then he got sick and so Carlos took over for him and, and uh, then so he tried to get Stan Leach to come and speak this morning. Do you know who Stan Leach is? He's the superintendent, kind of like the Pope over all the friends' churches in this area and so he was lined up to come and then, you know, but the thing is when you're like the Pope, you, you're one of those big guys, things come up and so some emergency came up and he wasn't able to be here and so you're, you're left here with me. And um, I'm kind of wondering almost if all those guys disappeared because they've got some kind of a huge Super Bowl party going on and we just don't really know about it. But, you know, so you, you had Stan lined up, and, but Stan and I are actually a whole lot alike. You know, Stan is an inspirational speaker and I've been inspired by Stan on many occasions. I, I really have. Uh, Stan knows the Bible inside and out and I have a Bible with both the insides as well as the outs. So we're, you know, very similar. Uh, Stan has a gift to make people laugh, and I can assure you people have laughed at me many times. Many times they have laughed. Stan is handsome. I have some hands. And, uh, you know, finally, uh, Stan is thoughtful and wise and intelligent and caring, and I married someone who's thoughtful and wise and intelligent and caring. And so uh, (laughs) she couldn't be here because she came down with a a fever last night. She's homesick, and so uh, that's my wife, Rosalie. Some of you know her. She works in the Evangelical Friends Church office and uh, tries to keep Stan and and Alan Amavisk and some of those guys on track and, and doing what they need to do. Well, again, my name's Dave Hammond. Way back, I've, I go way back with both Stan Leach and with, with Larry. Um, back in the 80s, I was the college pastor over at Rose Drive Friends, ran the recreation ministry. And then my wife and I were sent out as missionaries. And uh, you might, if you've been around for some time, you might even have one of those old prayer cards where we, we look like just little kids that were sent off overseas. And we went to Costa Rica to learn the language uh, for a year and then four years in Honduras uh, helping the, the, the pastors to plant churches in the city. And then we came back after that, and I, um, I was the, the lead pastor in starting a church out in Corona. It was called West Community Friends Church, and I, I pastored out there for about 13 years. And uh, Larry was extremely helpful during that whole time, and that he'd been through a lot of that whole church starting thing. And then uh, at that point, just really found that being the senior pastor of a church was not a, a real good fit long term for my gifts and abilities and life circumstances. And so I stepped down and actually went into education. Uh, got my credential while working full-time, taught at uh, some high schools out in Corona, and then got my administrative credential and degree. And uh, it's amazing how the Lord works that right as I was finishing up all of that, this opportunity came available at Friends Christian School. And it was a perfect uh, way to blend both my ministry background and my uh, my educational background. And so I'm, I'm loving working there in my second year there and uh, having a great time. So I understand you've been in a series called The Invisible War. And uh, I'm here this morning then to share some experiences and insights and some teaching from God's Word along these lines. Now, what do we know about spiritual warfare? My first recollection is back in the summer of 79. I had just graduated from high school. Many of you are trying to calculate your minds very quickly, but be careful because I was eight years old when I graduated. <laughs> I was. And uh, I was playing baseball, and I went with a team down to San Diego. We were in a tournament down there, and I stayed in the home of... Uh, you know, one of the, the opposing team, uh, one of the opposing players' family, and they had a TV set, and they had something on top of the TV that I had never seen before back in 1979. It was a box, and it was called HBO. It tells you how old I am. 
And uh, on HBO that night, the family happened to turn on a movie called The Exorcist. Fun, huh? I was a, a baby Christian at that point, had been a Christian for about a year, and so I was kind of intrigued by this, you know, the, the whole devil and what does he do, and i got to tell you, I was freaked out, absolutely, you know, put in awe of his great power, you know, the, spin a head around and this deep voice coming out of this little girl, and it, it was pretty freaky, and so, you know, it's probably tame by today's standards, but it really put, kind of put me in awe and fear of, of what Satan might do if you, if you cross him. But this morning, what we're going to do is get, get the word, not from Hollywood, but from God's word on, on what this is all about. So go ahead and turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 13. And I, I noticed this morning that it's actually written in the bulletin, too. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can read along there. And let's go ahead and pick up with verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. So who is it we're fighting with? Just to share a little bit of my ignorance, I, I've been in the ministry lots and lots of years. Uh, I have never seen a, a demon possession kind of a thing that you would call it. Um, went through four years of seminary at at Fuller Seminary, and I never went through a class on spiritual conflicts. It just was not part of the curriculum. They didn't, weren't talking about it back in those days. And it was probably in 1989, again, we were missionaries, we were down in, in Honduras, and uh, we traveled over to Guatemala, and Chuck Mylander, I don't know if you know who Chuck is, he was the superintendent before Stan, and he uh, had been working on, he authored a book on spiritual conflicts and even co-authored another book with a, a guy named uh, Dr. Neil Anderson, who's a professor at, at the Talbot School of Theology, and uh, on these, this very subject of spiritual conflicts and, and spiritual battles. And so he came down to do a, a retreat for all the missionaries teaching us what he knew, and it was a big eye-opener for me. Um, here's some of what I learned I had a little bit of knowledge of this, that Satan was originally an angel. He was the most beautiful of the angels, like an archangel. He had authority and power over many, many other angels. And he was so, in fact, so beautiful that he became prideful, and he wanted to be like God. And sorry, you know, this, this town is only big enough for one God, and so he was cast out of heaven along with about a third of the angels. And that, those are the beings that we now refer to as demons, you know, they're, they're just angels gone bad. They, they rebelled against God. And so Satan, it's not like you have the good God and the bad God. It's not like they're two equally but opposite superpowers. Satan is a created being. He's nothing like God. He can't be everywhere at once. He can't know what's going on in our minds. He doesn't have those kind of all-knowing powers as God does. Now, back in the day, if I had come across a defeated Christian, someone who was really struggling in their Christian life, you know, I would have counseled lots of things. Be in the scripture more. You know, be faithful in praying. Uh, practice spiritual disciplines like, like solitude and, and, uh, and fasting and such things. Get accountable with somebody. Someone who's asking you the hard questions about how you're doing. 
Uh, you know, what are your media habits? What are you watching? What are you reading and listening to? Uh, perhaps even see a Christian psychologist. And if someone had said, well, you know, what about our demonic nature? I would have said, well, yeah, demons exist, but it, they'll li- simply leave us alone if we're doing all the right things and drawing near to God. And I think that assumption was based on 1 John five eighteen and 19 that I had read at some point, where it says, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. That kind of stood out to me. The evil one cannot harm him. It goes on, interestingly enough, to say, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. The whole world under his control. And so what kind of came up in this, in this seminar that Chuck was leading is, if it's the case that Satan just basically leaves us alone if we're doing all the right things, then why are all these other passages in the Scripture? Things that say, like Ephesians 4.27 In your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil a foothold. Now, a foothold, you know, you think in military terms, is a a strong place where you're secure and from which you can do battle. For Satan to have a foothold in our life, he has a strong, secure place within us from which he can do battle with us. We're told not to give him that foothold. And holding on to anger and bitterness is one of the ways we can do that. In James 4, 7, submit yourselves to God Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Resist him. In 1 Peter 5, 8-9, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. And 2 Corinthians 2, 8-11 is another passage. Forgive each other in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. I've got to say... I was unaware of his schemes. I hadn't just been ignoring Satan, but I'd been ignoring all of these directives in the scripture that told me to stand firm against him, to resist him. And I think the problem is that for many of us, we read through the scripture and we see these these demon possession things. And again, I've never run across something like that in my life. I know some people that have come across really dramatic things like that. But me personally, I've never done it. And so we think of, you know, demon possession, but, but actually Dr. Anderson points out the word there in the original language is demonized. Demonized, not necessarily possessed and overpowered. And that means to be influenced or swayed or where Satan again has a foothold in our lives. And he estimates that 85% of Christians are demonized to one degree or another. And it may show up in an ongoing battle with lust or greed or envy or hatred or, you know, maybe a frustrating prayer life or or poor relationships. You may not be hearing voices and all the other kinds of crazy dramatic things, but, but Satan wants to gain influence and control, and so we are in a battle. And so the question is, who are we to battle with him? This greatly powerful angel that has so much insight, so much authority, we're no one. We cannot do battle with him. We cannot do it. As we saw, the whole world is under his control. He's called in the scripture, the God of this age, the the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And in fact, if you remember when Jesus went out in the wilderness and was tempted for 40 days, do you remember? Satan took him up to a high point and he showed him all the kingdoms of of the world. And he said, take a look at all these kingdoms, all of them I will give to you if you simply bow down and worship me. And Jesus' response is really interesting. He uses the scripture. He says, Satan, get away from me because it is said uh, to love the Lord your God and serve him only. But what's really interesting is what he didn't say. 
He didn't say, Satan, who are you kidding? All the kingdoms of the earth, they're mine. They're, they don't belong to you. You don't have the authority to give those to me. He didn't, he didn't say that. He didn't argue with him. He, he agreed. These things belong to him, which is what we saw in 1 John 5, 18. The whole world is under the control of the evil one. But that brings us back to the passage we read, Ephesians 6, 10. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. We don't have the power to deal with, with Satan, to fight him off, to resist him, but be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. I want to uh, back up and, and take a look at what his mighty power looks like. So just turn back a couple of chapters to Ephesians chapter 1, starting with verse 18. Ephesians 1, 18. And the Apostle Paul is praying for the Christians in Ephesus. And he says that he prays that the eyes of their heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his, inglorious, his glorious inheritance in the saints. So he prays that your eyes might be enlightened to know the hope, that you might know the riches, and, verse 19, that you may know his incomparable, incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now that's some serious power. All things in heaven and earth under his feet all powers and rulers and authorities. Keep your finger there. Go to chapter 2. I'm sorry. Go to the next, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Sometimes I have to say that out loud just to know where I'm at. Colossians 2. And verse 13 through 15. I didn't give this last night when I was speaking, but you know what? I think you guys can handle this. So there's a little extra for you. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. You were dead spiritually. He made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, that's referring again to these spiritual forces, he disarmed them. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So Jesus triumphed over Satan and all of his legions of, of, of uh, fallen angels at the cross with his shed blood. Okay, back to Ephesians. Ephesians 2, it's talking about the same thing. We were dead before and he's made us alive, beginning with verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions, our sins. It's by grace you have been saved. And notice verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. He raised us up with Christ. Notice that's in the past tense. It's not he will someday raise us up with Christ. 
But at the point when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, at that very moment, he raised you up with Christ and seated you with him in the heavenly realms. Now, you know, your body's still here and everything, but spiritually speaking, authority speaking, you are seated with him. And where is Jesus seated? At the right hand of the Father, far above all rulers and authorities and powers and dominions and everything else. And where are you? You're seated right there with him. You're seated right there with him. That is a far more impressive image than you know, some spiritual being that can twist someone's head around or make a deep voice come out of them. So in Ephesians 6, it says, stand firm. Stand your ground. Don't run scared. There's nothing to fear. There's no need to hide. It's not dependent on being a strong Christian. You don't have to go to Bible school or seminary or have been a Christian for 40 years to have this authority over the, the evil spirits. At the very moment that you place your faith in Christ, you're joined with him, you're seated with him above all these beings, you have that authority. It's kind of like a dog. You ever uh, known a dog to come after you and be barking, and so you're kind of scared, is this dog going to take my leg off? And you, you jump up onto a wall, or you stand on a chair, but then eventually maybe you get enough courage up and you, you step down and you go, go away! And the dog takes off with his leg running, with its tail between its legs. That's kind of like what it is with with demonic spirits. They can growl, they can bark, they can act ferocious, but you you resist them, you tell them to go away, and they have to. Now, as we're talking about this, standing firm, resisting the devil, don't get carried away with demon chasing. You don't want to become, you know, Buffy the demon slayer or something like that, where you're, you know, looking for them everywhere and and trying to find them. It's I, I really like the illustration that they're like germs. These kind of dark spirits are like germs. And, you know, what happens to a person if they fear that there are germs everywhere that they go? You know, oh, I, I wonder if there's germs. Did someone touch my Bible? It, ooh, you know, you just kind of get tied up in knots because you're afraid you're going to get infected by all the many germs that are out there. That's not a healthy way to live. By the same token, you don't ever say, well, if I just ignore the germs, they won't hurt me. But what do you do to deal with germs? you know how to stay clean. You know how to practice good hygiene. And it's the same in a spiritual sense. If we're seeing demons behind everything that's going on, we're going to become debilitated. Oh, I just dropped my pencil on the floor. I bet a demon knocked it off out of my hand just to frustrate me. My car won't start. It must be a demon. You know, I cast the demon out of my engine of my car. It's just, there's so many things that go on in this world that have nothing to do with spiritual warfare. We, we live in a fallen world. We trip over things, and it's just because we're clumsy, not because a demon stepped up and tripped us. And so we can't get too crazy and out of control with this, these kind of things. But by the same token, practice cleanliness, practice good spiritual hygiene, and we don't have to worry about them. Now, what does that look like? That's what we're finding in this passage. Let's pick up with verses 14 through 17. Of Ephesians 6. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, and the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now it's listing five different pieces of armor that we take up to protect us going into battle. And there's one that we take up to actually do battle. It's an offensive weapon. I'm just going to go over them briefly. You probably, in the course of this series, will talk about them in greater depth. But let's get an overview this morning, starting with the belt of truth. The belt 
in a Roman soldier's armor was crucial. It holds all the pieces together so that they're fitted where they need to be, protecting all the, the vital areas of the body. Truth is our primary defense. Jesus said he's the truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He, uh, how many times did he say, you know, truly, truly, I say to you, or if, you, if you're familiar with the old King James Version, verily, verily, I say to you. What he's saying is, you've heard lots of other things. I'm going to tell you the truth. This is the way it really is. Satan, on the other hand, according to John 8, it says he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. When anyone is in over their head in sin, you'll find them to be full of lies. It's full of lies. People that are addicted to substances, horrible liars, always covering their tracks, always trying to deceive, always trying to to knock you off their tracks. The devil has a major foothold in their life. And how does an addict get clean? There's one first and primary step that everyone has to go through, and that is admitting that they have a problem and they are powerless to defeat it. They express the truth. They get it out in the open. They get real. And that is the first and necessary step. They have to look to a a higher power, is what Alcoholics Anonymous calls it. But, uh, you know, Christians all over the place have discovered that, of course, Christ is that higher power that has to set them free from it. But it starts with proclaiming the truth. When you became a Christian, what's the first step you have to do? You're walking in this direction and you repent. That means you change direction. You walk away from the old. You confess, God, I'm a sinner. I'm sorry. I was wrong. I'm wrong to lead my own life the way that I wanted to lead it. And now I understand I need to yield myself completely to you. And so we confess what's wrong, what's going on in us. We tell the truth and it breaks the power. Truth is a a powerful thing in in spiritual warfare. So we need to immerse ourselves in truth to repel Satan's attacks. You know, the lie is also the primary way that uh, that Satan gets a stronghold in our lives. I love the illustration that our relationship with Christ is like a a long street. You know, maybe picture a narrow street in the East Coast if you've ever been there and and seen row houses. They're about four stories tall and very narrow streets, and you're walking down, and and the the buildings are like almost right on top of you. Well, if you can picture that, that Christ is at the end of that street, and you're... Your whole Christian journey is to just simply walk one step after another towards Christ. That's growing in maturity. And there's nothing that can stand in the way of you doing that. Satan, demons, they they don't have any power to to pull you off that path. You just keep your eyes on on him and you can keep walking. But what comes out of the windows and doors of these these houses on the side? Things like uh, temptations. You know, thrills, excitement, fun. Hey, come on in here. You hear the laughing and the, you know, the partying going on. Hey, I wonder what's going on in there. And if, if you can be deceived to where you're, you're now looking in the door and kind of looking through the window and, well, maybe I can just stop for a little while and you get inside, you know, and, and there you are and you're stuck and you're no longer making that progress one foot after another towards Jesus. Or, you know, maybe it's accusation that you hear coming out of the windows where, you know, instead of you're dumb, you're stupid, you're a loser, what it comes out as is I'm dumb, I'm stupid, I'm a loser. I'm never going to amount to anything. I'll never be happy. And so when we're making, walking down that path at a pretty good clip, before you know it, we're walking slower and slower and our shoulders get hunched and eventually you just kind of sit down on the curb and woe is me. And what has happened? 
It's just the power of the lie. Satan can't do anything to keep you from getting to Jesus. But if he can plant those accusations in our, in our minds, he can stop us. Another thing that might be coming out is uh, deception. Oh, you don't need church. You don't need to open the Bible. Prayer's not that important. You can hang out with people that are bad influences. Maybe you can be the good influence. You know, maybe the New Age stuff isn't so bad. Or what's a little palm reading or tarot card reading? No big deal. No power to overwhelm us whatsoever. It's simply the power of the lie. It's like a barking dog. Acts ferocious. Um, you know, can't do anything to us. Just, it's the lie. And so forget about the whole spinning your head around and the deep voice coming out in these images like the exorcist. If Satan can get us to believe his lies, he controls us. If he can get us to believe his lies, he controls us. And that's why the mind is so crucial. Keep the truth straight. Know the truth. Teach our kids the truth. It's what they're doing right now in their, in their classes. It's what we do at our school every day. The belt of truth is a, is a powerful piece of armor for us. Secondly, the breastplate of righteousness. Two thoughts here. First, if you're giving into sin, if you know what God wants and you're choosing to do what's wrong, you are simply inviting Satan's influence in your life. I mean, forget about spiritual warfare. You're not doing battle. You're throwing the doors wide open saying, come on in and wreak havoc in my life. That's in essence what we're doing. And so by being obedient and doing what's right, what is righteous, it's a powerful piece of armor and protecting us. You're keeping that door shut. You're limiting Satan's access to your heart and soul. But secondly, what Satan does, he tempts us, yes, and tells us the stuff isn't so bad, it'll be fun, no big deal. But then once he gets us, he then goes on to accuse us. I can't believe you did that. You've blown it. You're not a good enough Christian. God will never forgive you of this. It's an attack. And the truth about righteousness is we will never be righteous on our own. We will never be righteous enough. We're righteous in Christ only. He is our righteousness. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to say that when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And yet we still have a role because the Bible tells us that, that sin separates us from God. It puts a barrier between us and him. So we need to keep short accounts by confessing our sin daily. You know, don't wait until a week later when you've got to sit there and confess for, you know, who knows how long. Every single day, go before him and confess your sin. In 1 John 1, 9, uh, 1, 9, a very important verse to know. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. On a daily basis, be purified of unrighteousness. Take up that breastplate of righteousness that he offers us. And we're far better equipped to fight off the enemy's attacks. Third point, feet fitted with the readiness from the gospel of peace. We have peace with God through Christ, but we need his peace in our hearts to protect against Satan's attacks. Peacemakers bring people together, promoting fellowship and reconciliation rather than driving a wedge between them, driving them apart through, through gossip and through talking poorly and, and enraging other people. You know, by, I, I can't believe he said that to you. I wouldn't take that. You know, we have ways that we can take a fire and, and make it bigger, or we can just kind of calm things down, be peacemakers. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. It gives the devil a foothold, we're told in Ephesians 4. But rather pursue peace. 
One of my all-time favorite verses is Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. One of the things I love about that verse is it says right in the beginning, it may not be possible. In spite of your very best efforts to live at peace with that person, you may not be, it may not be possible. They may not allow it. But if it's possible, at least as far as it depends on you, live at peace. Because you can be assured where there's anger and dissension in relationships, you know Satan's right in the midst of all of it. So peace with God and others is powerful protection. The fourth item is a shield of faith. And faith means trusting and relying, and that's something that builds up over time. When we first come to become Christians, we know God a little bit. We know a few things about him, but it's a caricature of who God is. As we read through the scripture, we get to know him better and better and better, and we come to trust him more and more. And it's the same thing with obeying the things that he asks us to do. When we're first starting out, you know, he, he tells us to turn the other cheek and love the enemy. We're going, what? No way. And then over, over time, as we put those things into practice and we see how it works out, wow, man, you know, God actually might kind of know what he's doing here a little bit. Our faith increases. And so take up the shield of faith, trusting in him. Now, from what I understand in in olden days, they had their wooden shields and they would protect themselves and they'd shoot the arrows over. And so what they learned uh, pretty early on to do is to light the arrow on fire. And even if you did have a shield, it would hit your shield and, and light your shield on fire. And all of a sudden you're carrying around this thing on fire and you have to throw it down and you're completely exposed. And so what they started doing was coating the shields with hide, with like, like leather. And they would dip it in water, saturate it, and make it pretty heavy, I would imagine. And that way, when the flaming arrows come over, it hit the, the, wet, uh, the wet hide and it would douse it. It would put it out, extinguishing the flaming arrows of the evil one. Satan sends flaming arrows. Job loss. A relationship falls apart. Bad news from the doctor. And so when we see those flames coming, do we, do we panic and take our life in our own hands? Maybe turn tail and run? Or do we stand firm and hold up the shield, trusting, God, this is a hard thing. I don't know how I'm ever going to get through this, but I trust that you will walk with me every step of the way. Take up the shield of faith. The helmet of salvation. It's the last and most important element of the armor. Can you imagine these guys that are running around playing football today? If they were out there with all their many pads, but they didn't have their helmet on? Crazy. It's the one thing you need more than anything. I would imagine if you gave them a choice, you can you know, have all of your, your, uh, your, your padding except for the helmet, or you can have just your helmet, nothing else. I think they'd go with the helmet. You've got to protect the head. You can be wounded in your legs, your arms, your torso, your feet, your hands, but if you get a blow to the head... Your, your lights are out and you're done. And so it's, it's funny to me that it's listed last in, these, um, in, in the armor because it really is the first and most foundational. Spiritually speaking, we're completely vulnerable without salvation, without that saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Satan is a brilliant and powerful foe. We're no one to stand up to him. We cannot stand up to him on our own. The only reason we can stand firm and resist him is because we are connected to Jesus. That's the only reason. That's the helmet of salvation. If a person tries to battle Satan without first connecting to Jesus, they're toast. They're completely helpless. Blow to the head. Ding. You're done. Salvation protects us. 
And the last item that it mentions is the sword of the Spirit. This is the only offensive weapon with which you attack. And from what I understand in the original language, that's the spoken word of God. It's not just the word of God, but the spoken word. The one offensive weapon, we attack with truth. And so we memorize scripture like, like Jesus did. Every time you see him uh, resisting Satan, he, he quotes scripture. It's not, well, I kind of think that maybe it's this way. No, he just he puts the truth right out there. And so when faced with a lie, come back with the truth. Now, here's something that was a revolutionary insight when I, when I first heard it many years ago. Whenever Jesus confronted Satan, he did it speaking verbally. He did it speaking out loud. And I never quite understood why that was until, you know, it's just a very simple thing. Satan is an angel. The fallen angels that we call demons, they're angels. They are limited, finite beings. They can't read our minds. And so... We can, we can pray all, the, all that we want under our breath or try and resist all we want just in the, in the quietness of our own mind, but they can't hear that. They're not under any obligation or authority to respond to that. And so you speak out loud to take authority over them, to resist them. The mistake we make is asking God to make them go away. And that, that's what I did back in the days when, you know, I, I was kind of scared in the exorcist images. I'd pull the covers over my head and go, oh, God, please make them go away. You ever have those kind of experiences at night where you feel like there's a dark presence in your room? Maybe it's waking up from a, a horrific dream, or you know, maybe it's just a sense of there's something, a sense of evil. I would just cover my head, and I'd pray, God, make it go away. But he tells me to resist. He says, you do it. Jesus reigns over all. We reign with him. The demons are at the bottom of the food chain. They can growl and look scary and threaten, but if we stomp our foot and tell them to go away, they must. Claim the blood of Christ, your position in him, and he has to submit. You resist, and he will flee. And this works on, on scary dreams. It works on some illnesses. I'm not saying, you know, that every illness that comes around is of a demonic origin. You got the flu. Oh, cast out the demon of the flu. I'm not saying that at all. We, are, we live in a world where there are many illnesses and viruses and, and bugs, but, but there are other things that s- simply are spiritually warfare-motivated. Destructive behavior, thought life, um, take authority over those things. And the passage on doing spiritual battle concludes with, with prayer. Verses 18 to 20. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me when I open my mouth. Words may be given to me so I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. So this is flowing out of the the passage that talks about the sword of the Spirit. In other words, pray truth. Pray according to the truth. The Scripture says if we ask anything according to God's will, he will do it. So it doesn't do any good to pray for that fancy new, uh, brand new red Ferrari or, you know, for a million dollars. It doesn't do any good to pray for those things. It doesn't do any good to pray that the Giants will win the Super Bowl. won't do any good. No Giant fans here? So they may win, but probably not going to do any good to pray for it. We know so many things, however, that he does want. He wants us to live holy and righteous lives. You pray for that, and God will be working. He wants those that don't know Jesus to come to know him and to be saved. You pray that, and he will be working overtime to make that happen. doesn't mean it will happen. That person has a say in whether or not they come to Christ. He wants people who are fighting to be reconciled. You pray these things, and God will be working. 
Neil Anderson, Dr. Anderson gives a couple of examples. He, through his experiences, he's interviewed lots of people. He's worked with people that have, you know, kind of strong demonic issues. And one was a student at, at uh, Biola who, uh, his mother's a psychic, and he told Dr. Anderson uh, that his mom said to him, Jim, have you been praying for me? And he says, of course, Mom. Well, don't. You're disturbing my aura. A little more dramatic example, apparently a high priest in the upper echelons of Satanism came to Christ. And about six months later, he was interviewing him, and he asked him, based on your experience of the other side, what is the Christian's first line of defense against demonic influence? And the guy responded, prayer. And when you pray, mean it. Fervent prayer thwarts Satan's activity like nothing else. In my life and my experiences, I started out with that whole exorcist thing, didn't know what to do with it, covered my head with a sheet thinking somehow that's going to protect me. I mean, how, how silly is that? I was just plain scared. I had the, this experience. I, was, I used to be the lockup guy back when I was a college, uh, seminary student, lockup guy at Rose Drive Friends. It's a, it's a big church, lots of doors, probably about 200 doors. I have to go around every night after 10 o'clock at night when all the activities would be done and, and check every single door to make sure it was all locked up. Have you ever wandered around a church late at night when nobody's around? It's a little freaky sometimes. Sometimes I'm there at midnight, one in the morning, you know, and uh, walking around and, you know, you just, I don't know if, it, if, if it's really something there or not, but you just kind of feel a sense of, of oppression or, or darkness. And, and I didn't know what to do with that. Um, you, you walk through the little children's classrooms and there's a doll sitting in the corner and I half expected sometimes to hear the doll go, you know, get me out of here. Um, but somewhere along the lines, I'd heard that Satan doesn't like the blood of Jesus. And so, you know, talk about the blood of Jesus. And I knew a song that talked about the blood of Jesus. And so I would walk around when I'd be feeling particularly vulnerable. And, you know, Jesus, name above all names, beautiful Savior, glorious Lord. Emmanuel, God is with us, blessed Redeemer, living word. Oh, sing, oh, sing of my Redeemer. With his blood, he purchased me while on the cross, he sealed my pardon, paid the debt, and made me free. And I would be singing a nice, loud voice, just in case there's anything around here. Blood of Jesus! And, uh, you know, it, it's a little bit comforting, but it still wasn't a real good response. Well, again, we, we got some training down in, when I was in Honduras and came back, and we were planting this church in Corona. And there's definitely lots of spiritual warfare um, going on around a pastor that's planting a church. And um, Satan doesn't want this thing to happen. I had two little kids, a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and um, in the middle of the night, my four-year-old, Josh, was having a lot of difficulty. He'd many times wake up screaming in the night, having terrifying, you know, seeing things in his room, uh, bad dreams. He'd come running into our bedroom and wake us up, and we didn't quite know what to do with it. We did probably what lots of you do. We went to the bedroom, turned on the light. Okay, is there anything under the, under the bed? No. Is there anything in the closet? Okay, is everything all right? And, and then you know, we'd put him back to bed. Well, one night... He came running into our room, and he was scared, and so come on into our bed with us, and, and um, rather than kind of sinking back down into the bed, he just sat up straight in the bed, and I could sense this. I go, Josh, what is wrong? There's a monkey over there in the corner. What's, why is there a monkey in the corner? What, 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 Josh, what do you mean a monkey in the corner? Come on, go to sleep. There's a monkey in the corner, and he's shaking a fist at me. Well, that got my attention. A monkey shaking a fist at you. And so I, you know, sat up in bed, turned on the lights. I'm, 
a monkey? Yes, there's a monkey in the corner. He's shaking a fist at me. Fortunately, I'd learned these kind of things about resisting the devil. And so I, I prayed a prayer. Okay, um, Josh, let's, let's try this. Uh, if there is any kind of a monkey in the corner shaking a fist at Joshua, then in the name of Jesus and by his authority, I command you to leave and not, and I didn't even finish. I just leave and not, and he started giggling, went, ha ha, there he goes. We had never talked about this. We'd never said, okay, if something like this happens, I'm going to make some kind of a statement and it's going to go away. I was just kind of throwing out a lifeline here. Let's try this. And he literally said the thing disappeared. Making me believe a little bit. Josh, is there anything else? Yes, there's something kind of blackish over in the corner over there. Okay, if there's any kind of a blackish thing over in the corner, then in the name of Jesus, by his authority, not by my authority, but by his authority, I command you to leave and not come back. Is it gone, Josh? Yeah, it's gone. And, you know, we're, we're talking a little bit more, and I had my hands like this. I said, Daddy, there's a claw on your hand. If there's some kind of a thing in here that has a claw on my hand, I command you in the name of Jesus to leave and not come back. And so, you know, it was gone. And nothing else in our room. I took him back to his room. And is there anything in here? Yes, there's something kind of, you know, yellowish and prayed the same thing. And uh, is it all gone, Josh? Yes, it's all gone. So we pl- prayed, you know, one more prayer. And I just decided to clean the whole house. If there's anything, anything anywhere in this house, <laughs> get out. Don't come back. And I put a wall around this house that no unclean spirit can enter at any time during the night or morning hours to bother any of us in any way, all by Jesus' authority. And, and then I put him in bed, turned out the light, and he rolled over and went to sleep. I don't know if there was a yellow thing or a monkey shaking a fist or a black thing. I didn't see it. So often, though, I think we're, we're quick to dismiss what our kids see as, oh, you know, there's nothing there. It's just an overactive imagination. But what really got to me is that after praying and, and making these things go away, he rolled over and went to sleep. I would think that if he were just having an overactive imagination, he'd be saying, Daddy, don't leave me. You know, claws and monkeys. And, but he was absolutely fine and at peace and ready to go to bed on his own. And so, you know, what we started doing from that point forward is we would pray a cleansing prayer of our house every night before the kids went to bed. Same kind of thing. Anything, anywhere in this house, any unclean spirit, order you to leave in Jesus' name, don't come back. Uh, Put a wall around this house. Nothing can enter during the night, all by Jesus' authority. And what we found is the nights when we did that, the kids slept great. And there would be times we'd get in late from some activity or another and we'd just be too tired or forget about it. We'd pray and go to bed, or we wouldn't pray and go to bed. And those are the nights that he's waking up screaming in the night and coming down to seeing us. I can't say for sure that that's what truly was going on, but I really believe that it was. And so we ended up teaching our kids, and maybe it sounds a little freaky, you know, teaching kids about unclean spirits in the room. What it really did is it empowered them. So that if they ever saw anything, we taught them, if you see anything, you have the authority in Jesus that you can tell it to go away and not come back. That Jesus is bigger and stronger than anything that you might see. And that, that made them, made it was good with them. What kind of image do you have of the devil? Exorcist image where he's this, you know, immense, uncontrollable power. Or maybe you have kind of the opposite image of a little devil on the shoulder like the cartoons that you can kind of, you know, flick him off your shoulder. Well, Satan is powerful, but I know someone far more powerful and far more awe-inspiring through giving his life on the cross, through shedding his blood, he conquered Satan. 
He conquered all of Satan's legion of angels and he took his throne on high, far above all powers and authorities and, and, and principalities and spiritual forces. He's above all of that. And as a Christian, you don't have to listen to those lies. You can tell him to take a hike. You don't have to put up with his harassment because you are seated with Christ above those powers. Now, if you have never given your life to Christ, I have good news and bad news. The bad news is you're on your own. And you just simply don't have the tools to do battle with these spiritual forces. You're defenseless before him and his angels. You're at their mercy. It could be they're lying low because you're already pursuing a path that he doesn't want to bother you. You're already walking far away from God. Or it could be that, you know, you're scared to death and out of control. But he's too big and too powerful on your own. The good news is you don't have to be scared and out of control. Jesus is inviting you to sit on his throne, to reign over them, to put them under your feet. And it happens not by frequent church attendance. It, it doesn't happen by membership or baptism or any other right, but simply by letting him have your heart yielding the control of your life to him as your Lord and your Savior. And I've told you just about everything I know about spiritual conflicts. And um, I'm sure they'll have a lot more stuff as this series goes on, but why don't we go ahead and pray, and wherever you're at, uh, we'll ask God to be working in your life. Heavenly Father, we praise you, we worship you, we give you thanks. Thank you for the worship we've had already this morning that our God is greater, our God is higher. There's none other like you, Lord. We've been expressing that truth to anyone and anything and everything that's around here. And we're so thankful that that's true. We're so thankful that that you give us your righteousness, that you cleanse us of all of our sin, that you give us all authority over spiritual forces of darkness, that we don't have to worry about them and fear them because you are far more powerful. And so, Lord, I pray for those who know you this morning that they would take up that power, that they would stand firm, they would resist the devil. Again, not, not get crazy and, and looking for, for demons behind all the things that are going on, but simply to practice good spiritual hygiene. And for those here this morning that have never given their heart to you, it could be that they're ready to do so. They're looking for this answer to be set free from the oppression that um, they don't even know where it comes from. Give them the courage to pray right along with me. Heavenly Father, forgive me. Forgive me for the way I've been in charge of my own life. I've, I've been arrogant, thinking I didn't need you, thinking that I could run my life better than you could. Now I recognize how wrong that is, and I decide to turn away from that and instead give myself to you. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. And so the best I know how, I, I give myself to you. Enter into me, take control, wash me and cleanse me and and take over as my Lord and my Master and my Savior. Make me into the person you'd have me be. Thank you for doing that even right now. And thank you for raising me up and seating me with you far above all rulers and authorities and powers and taking away my fear. Lord, I thank you for the person who just prayed that prayer and give them the courage to talk to someone on staff here or a friend or or myself that we can help and encourage them in their, uh, their walk with you. So we praise you and we give you all the thanks. Lead us now this week, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.